Welcome everyone to the Angry Sun Zone. Uh, today on the Zone, uh, we're going to be talking about some recent games we've been playing and uh, just going a little bit into some commentary on those. And uh, so it's not really a specific topic this week. Uh, it's more of just a general what we've been playing, some current title, uh, current-ish titles, I suppose. A <laughs> uh, little bit less nostalgic than usual. That's right. Uh, I'm Santo. And I'm Sean. And I'm Alex. And so, yeah, I'm just going to jump right into it, I guess, with what I've been playing. Sounds good. Uh, so, and now for, for the viewers, uh, I actually also do a little bit of mountain biking uh, as a hobby. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, so I recently started playing a mountain biking game. And uh, before we get into that, I actually, uh, I kind of wanted to just talk about this in general. Like, this is the first mountain biking video game I've actually ever played. And to me, I actually, that's actually kind of interesting to me. Because I think about some adjacent sports in a couple different ways that I had, that there's, that they're quite popular uh, in, in, in a sense, in the sort of sports game arena right so uh downhill skiing there's many downhill skiing video games um many of which are you know sort of favorites uh 1080 snowboarding uh <laughs> with that amazing uh 1080 great uh, announcer yeah yeah great great announcer in that game ricky winterborn <laughs> yeah yeah or uh, or the ssx series um uh, for for snowboarding, um, getting into you know things focused more on like you know style stylish tricks. You know you've got Dave Mira's BMX or other BMX like uh, games or trials, uh, which would be the the term for that style of riding, where you're riding a bicycle in a skate park. There's a lot. There's video games that focus on that. Um, the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. You know these are. These are popular games about like stunts and tricks, and some skiing games. Some skiing games have tricks as well, and, um, and so it's it's interesting to me that there are several adjacent genres of sport uh, that I feel are relatively well represented in video games, um, but for some reason, mountain biking I would say isn't. Um, I mean. Like I said, this game that I'm going to talk that that I've been playing, it's called Lonely Mountain Downhill, but it's the first mountain biking game I've played, and I, I've never really even really seen any mountain biking game become popular at all that I can think of. I, I should warn you, it's easy for your expectations to go all downhill from there. Yeah, so I, and anyway, so yeah, I was kind of thinking about this, and uh, I, I did a bit of research, and uh, obviously, uh, intuitively, I'd say mountain biking is not quite as popular as something like downhill skiing. Um, and so I looked into some stats on this, and based on some stats from the Outdoor Foundation, uh, which is a trade organization in the United States sponsored by major brands uh, who are not sponsoring us, uh, but like North Face, Patagonia... Uh, DuPont, uh, which of course makes all the plastics in your house, <laughs> uh, at least the chemical feedstock for them. Uh, and they have an annual survey 
with data going back um, a couple decades. Uh, and they estimate that about 3% of the population in the U.S. mountain bikes, uh, about 5% are downhill skiers. Uh, and there's a one and a half percent cross country skiers, but I'm assuming there's probably a lot of overlap with downhill skiers in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we're looking at some things like BMX, which would include both racing and trials, but that's only at one percent, and skateboarding's at two and a half percent. So, what? Uh, okay, those stats are very weird to me. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they're, I, I don't know. I mean, so these these stats are based. Uh, that data is based on a representative sample uh, that attempts to capture the entire United States uh, demographic range. Right. Um, they have uh, age 6 to 17 as well. Uh, and the numbers across all those categories are a little higher, but broadly speaking, they're not that different. Um, although, obviously, there are large regional differences. Where we live in the Pacific Northwest, mountain biking is quite popular and... Uh, uh, may in fact even be as popular as skiing here. Uh, I don't know, uh, but it's definitely uh, not the case elsewhere uh, that mountain biking is as popular. And so certainly I may have a skewed perspective. I, I was just more saying, like, it surprised me that skateboarding was that low. Yeah, skateboarding at 2.5% does seem a bit low. Although, again, since this is aggregated as a representative sample, probably... A lot of rural areas don't have much in the way of skateboarders. Did they separate skateboarding from longboarding? I... No. Okay. No, they did mm. not. Um, but anyway, the... Uh, yeah, so based on popularity, it's hard to say that... I mean, skiing's more popular and has more video games, but skateboarding and trials are less popular and have more video games. So I don't know what to make of that, really. Maybe it's just a popularity thing in terms of perception, where more people are aware of skiing over downhill mountain biking or mountain biking in general. Skiing even has some deeper roots, like Ski Free, that game that I believe it was included in the Microsoft game pack, the one where you're yeah, chased uh, by the abominable snowman. Yeah, yeah. So it has yeah. hit mainstream before. Yeah, the other, so and the other thing I was thinking um, is just the history, right? Mountain biking really isn't that old as a sport or even as a thing. It basically dates back to uh, about the 1970s at its earliest, uh, whereas skiing actually dates back uh, quite far. Uh, there have been historical <laughs> artifacts found uh, at least 5,000 years old of skis. Of people um, going semi-controlled in a, in a semi-controlled manner down a hill. <laughs> yeah, well, there's even cave paintings of uh, hunters skiing to hunt game uh, in Europe during the Ice Age, I, I guess. That's uh, pretty cool. It's pretty say. cool. And even uh, apparently uh, competitive skiing dates back to at least uh, the 1800s when the Swedish army, who was trained in skiing for military purposes... Uh, started competing amongst themselves uh, for sport uh, in terms of, like, racing, ski racing, right? And so ski racing even is at least, uh, like, 150-odd years old uh, compared to mountain biking at all. So there's a much deeper cultural penetration, Mm -hmm. I, I think, of the understanding of what skiing is. Skiing also has, like, a bit more of a special quality to it just because of like just because of snow really 
like a lot of places don't get snow, so that's almost like a I don't want to say mystical. There's a different word that I want to use for it's like, magical. Sure, it's like a <laughs> magic powder. It's the powder baby. But yeah, like it's maybe, a, maybe more exotic in a way. I mean, I can see that. Although, arguably, like you know, to me, the desert feels similarly exotic and can be a perfect uh, locale for mountain biking. Actually, both in real life and in the, the game I'm playing. Yeah, but de- deserts have really bad marketing, though. <laughs> you know what's interesting, too, though, is if you look at popular culture through which, you know, people might be exposed to that, um, skiing is one of those genres that even in movies would transcend, like, you'd see skiing in a romance movie just as much as you'd see it in an action movie like James Bond or, you know, various other movies. There's even been horror movies where someone's stuck on the ski slopes and they're stuck in the in the lift and they're, you know, at peril of dying, so... You see very few even, say, like, movies where the center is mountain biking. Just as a, you know... If that's Well, mountain biking, I would argue, is way, way harder to film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we've it, seen. We've it, seen it, the footage. It is challenging. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'd say there's some really, really cool videos being filmed these days with uh, drone photography for mountain biking. Right. Yeah. Uh, but even that is something that is, it's very new. Um, and yeah, I think for the most part, for the most part, I think people who don't actually go out and do it themselves, you know, have a, they have a, a less clear understanding of what the sport really is. But yeah, I, I mean, a lot of aerial photography and uh, GoPro footage these days has opened up uh, a lot of really cool videography of mountain biking. Uh, there's tons of cool stuff on YouTube. Um, a shout out to the uh, Rampage uh, for anyone that is unfamiliar with mountain biking and wants to uh, be simultaneously impressed and anxious. Uh, yeah, you can watch people like basically fall off a mountain with a couple wheels <laughs> underneath them and do backflips and supermans and uh and all sorts of crazy tricks on the way down uh, so anyway yeah um i don't know if you guys have any other sort of comments on that uh just like the darth of mountain biking video games uh but i think it's kind of interesting i think it's it it it's an untapped it's an untapped niche in the action sports video game uh, world, I guess. You know what? There's one specific cinematic experience that I think conveys the excitement that I felt when I was watching your, the footage that you had taken, um, and that's the Return of the Jedi in Star Wars, where they're zipping through Endor um, on the on the hover craft or on the speeder bikes. And uh, similar, there was definitely some parts of, uh, of the video footage that I was watching uh, from your perspective uh, on the camera that was mounted on your helmet that definitely made me feel like, you know, a video game that's done really well really would give you that adrenaline rush um, that you felt when I was watching Star Wars and, and, and in that scene. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... I, I like to describe mountain biking, like, how it feels... Um, it's basically, it's like a roller coaster, except you're in control of not dying. 
and that adds that adds a lot of uh, that adds a lot to the experience. Actually, uh, <laughs> um, it's it's very like it actually gets like if you really get into like a flow state, um, it's almost it's almost meditative in a way, and it's it's a very it's it's like it's it's simultaneously exciting and relaxing. Um, because you're in nature, you're in this like beautiful forest, uh, nice trails, um, but but it's also very focused, and you have to pay attention, and you you have to have like a good a good mental game actually. Um, you know, one of the most important things in mountain biking is just not you have to like get past the fears in order to ride well. Uh, if you're afraid of falling off an edge and you spend too much time looking at that edge, you're going to go straight off of it. Uh, because that's just the way your brain kind of works in terms of motor processing. What you look at is where you go. And so literally you cannot look at the things that you're afraid of on a mountain bike. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, that's sort of the mental game. And um, that's actually a good seed into uh, how I felt playing Lonely Mountains Downhill, uh, which is the game I just picked up. And I actually think it, it, it captures the feeling of mountain biking pretty well, I, I, I'd say. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, um, it, so basically there's uh, different mountains in the game with different aesthetics, right? So there's like a desert environment. There's like a lush forest. Uh, uh, there's like a, a Finland, I think, like <laughs> fjord, fjord uh, uh, area. Uh, so there's like these different environmental biomes, right? That your uh, uh, that the mountains are on, at, and then the mountains have different trails where you ride. You start at the top and you get to the bottom. Uh, the controls are really simple. Uh, there's basically just accelerate, brake, uh, sprint, and then you use the joystick uh, for uh, directional controls. Uh, it's got like a it's got a couple different settings for directional controls relative to the screen or relative to the rider, um, but that's just a preference thing. I prefer to the rider. Uh, feels like I'm able to do precision movements more easily with that control scheme. Um, but yeah, the uh, and then each trail on the mountain you start out just in like an exploratory mode where uh, all you have to do is hit the checkpoints on the way down and then get to the end, get to the bottom of the trail. And there's a lot of shortcuts and there's a lot of alternate paths and there's a lot of background scenery that's interesting. There's no music in the game, um, but it's got a very great, like a natural atmosphere. Uh, there's tons of like bird song and rustling wind and flowing water if you're near a creek. Um, you might have every once in a while, you might hear a red-tailed hawk in the background, um, uh, just somewhere on the mountain. And so it, it's got a very, it's a very, like just watching it, it's a very peaceful, relaxing game uh, to watch. Um, and that I think, like that's definitely very similar to the experience I have, like, and one of the reasons I like mountain biking is because, yeah, it's it's like I'm out in nature, I'm in the forest or wherever, um, and I'm I'm getting this like nice sort of relaxed atmosphere. But at the same time, with this simple control scheme and uh, you know a relaxing atmosphere, 
you have to not you have to not crash and uh, the game can be a bit challenging in that respect actually because uh if you fall too hard you crash if you drive into a rock you crash if you hit a tree you crash uh there's obstacles everywhere and uh if you're on too steep of a slope, your brakes won't be able to stop you. Um, these are all like very similar to actual mountain biking. And uh, as you, and you know, the first run down is the, in the explore mode. And that's very intentional because uh, you're not, you're going to crash a lot. Your rider's going to die. And actually the game's uh, got a little bit of a funny uh, dichotomy of, of, you've got this nice, peaceful, relaxing atmosphere. And then every time you crash, uh, your ragdoll just kind of like <laughs> flies everywhere, nice. and you've got uh, you've got like some some blood effects. Uh, I should I should say actually the game has got a low poly uh, aesthetic. Mm, okay. Uh, so that that just means that the uh, it, it's three it's a three D game, but uh, there's a very uh, it's a very angular very angular uh, design of the three D three D models very low fidelity but it's intentionally that way and i think it works really well okay uh and so the it, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel gruesome uh to see your rider flung off of a bike and literally get stuck into a tree in some unnatural position it's just funny <laughs> oh yeah ragdoll's always funny um What's the uh, perspective of the game? Is it like first person, third person? Uh, it's third person top down. Okay. Uh, I would say it's uh, almost isometric, actually. Right, okay. Um, but it's uh, not from... It's not... Yeah, the, the camera does not rotate. The camera just kind of moves. Mm. Um and so, yeah, it's it's almost an isometric perspective, actually. Uh, but you're not fixed to moving in any particular direction. Um, okay. Other than you won't be moving uphill. <laughs> you try to go uphill, it doesn't really work. I play ski free. I know how that works. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't go uphill. Um, yeah. One, one thing that I want to mention, and it's actually really interesting hearing that this is like a, that kind of low-poly low art style that they use for this. Uh, one thing that I thought of again to why there might not be that many mountain biking games is because, like when we watched uh, like some of the GoPro footage that you shot, like you're going fairly, you know, you're going at speed and you're on a trail. The trail is fairly narrow and there's just a ton of stuff around you. So I can imagine trying to just like design a trail in a 3D environment would take a ton of work. Because again, if you look at yeah. like, if you look at like any yeah, kind of sure. skiing or snowboarding game, it's just big white expanse with trees up up around. There's not a bunch of rocks, a bunch of dirt, uh, uh, and just like brush all around all around the place, like really close near you that you would need to render well enough that it doesn't look like garbage. It's not like you could use random procedural generation each time either, because. You know, if so, if you're if you're going to be practicing in an arena, you'd want it to be familiar yeah. to the person who's playing. And on top of that, you know, unless they're pruning what is coming out of any procedural generation, you could easily end up with some uh, really bad tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Like when I was looking at the footage, 
and looking at these trails, I could tell that a lot of time and effort and maintenance was put into making these things not, you know, some killer track that you're going to wreck yourself needlessly on, um, you know, but rather one that encourages you to, cha you know, challenge yourself and, and work better. I could, I could feel some of the design elements that might have been thrown into some of the, like, the way that the trails were managed. And similarly, a game designer would have to have an appreciation for the craft enough you know, and not just only be a video game designer, but also appreciate what would go into that to make it as challenging as a real life one would be, but within the context of still being effective for the video game medium. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think with certain, I think with certain activities in particular, you know, to really capture like a mountain biking video game. Yeah, you do need to be both like a video game designer and like have mountain biking experience right yeah it's not and probably even like a little bit more like maybe even some understanding of trail design and stuff like that yeah in the, in the real world uh, and how that affects real world trails you know to come up with something that's not just going to be fun to play but also feel like it could be something that real world mountain bikers would be able to do i i'm not saying all of them uh the stuff in this game uh, if a real mountain biker were to do it, it would be like world-class level. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, like, you know, in terms of the, the scale of the jumps and, and yeah. some of the things that your character does in this game. Uh, but, you know, obviously it's a video game. You're going to do that. It's the same thing with skiing games, right? You can pull off a 1080 in a skiing game without much trouble, um, you know, doing something like that in real life. That's a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so once you've kind of had, once you've had a run just exploring uh, the trail, uh, then you get challenges and the challenges are specific to each trail and each trail is going to have beginner, uh, intermediate and like advanced uh, challenges, uh, which are most of the challenges are basically just uh, get to the bottom within, within a certain time or get to the bottom with uh, under a certain number of crashes. Uh, because you get an unlimited number of tries uh, between checkpoints. When you die, you respawn at the last checkpoint, uh, complete with whatever time you had when you hit that checkpoint. But that's not going to be... Uh... Yeah, and so there's challenges, about, there's challenges around both time and a number of crashes, basically. Uh, there's also a a challenge on each one to beat it without dying once, uh, which is uh, going to require you to really know the trail top to bottom. Mm -hmm. I'm just picturing in my mind, like the loading screen after you've died being like the medical bills that you would have theoretically <laughs> racked up. Yeah. Actually, like there's like, you know, <laughs> once you, uh, once you get past the loading screen at the main <laughs> menu, there's no loading anywhere. Wow. Okay, that's uh, yeah. cool. Nice. It's a low. Well, it, well done. I think because again, because of the low poly art style, uh, probably the whole game probably fits in your RAM. <laughs> Heck, the whole game probably fits entirely in your VRAM. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, I think it was only like 500 megabytes. <laughs> so like it's far, yeah. it's uh, yeah. Like the the assets in this game are are probably extremely small uh, because of the art style. But but the tracks have been made with care and they're fun to uh, they're fun to use and I can already tell it's one of those games where 
it's really easy to start playing it and it's going to be really hard to get good at it because it's easy to move the bike around. It's easy to, uh, you know, go forward and brake and stuff like that. But, um, if you really get into it and you're trying to get down at these advanced expert level times, uh, you're going to need to take some huge shortcuts, uh, which involve risk, uh, risk of crashing, uh, because of high speed or risk of crashing because of, uh, large jumps uh, that are going to land you in bad positions. Uh, if you go off a jump and land in a tree, you're that that you're done, right? You got to restart. You you go off and you land on a rock, you're done. You got to restart. You go off and the jump was too high. Uh, sorry, you know that's it, the, the impact was too great and just you die. <laughs> There's lots of ways for your rider to die in this game. <laughs> ride or die. Uh, so. It really is, uh, I think it, it, I think it captures the spirit of like, you know, riding a bike, uh, down a trail in the wilderness really effectively. Uh, and I think if you enjoy, uh, mountain biking or nature, that it's, uh, a fun game to consider. Um, I would think it would probably appeal to people who are in the mood for maybe just a slightly more relaxed kind of, uh, racing or time trial game in general. Because uh, it's a very beautiful game to uh, just even just to watch and look at. So, yeah, Lonely Mountain Downhill uh, or Lonely Mountains Downhill. Yeah, super fun. And uh, yeah, that's uh, I think that's about all I have to say for it. You guys got any questions? Cool. Do you know uh, when it was released? Uh, 2019. Okay, so fairly recent. Yeah, so it's not it's not super old. Like it is, it is fairly recent, and that's the thing. Um, there's not a lot of mountain biking games to choose from. Yeah, there were a few older releases, like back on like there was one on the PS1 that apparently people, I, that people were talking about online, but uh, literally. Like, in the reviews for, like, this game uh, that I was reading, they're referencing, like, a PS1 game. <laughs> as, like, oh, yeah, you know, we haven't really had a good game since this this one. And it's, like, oh, oh okay. Wow. <laughs> so here's my question is, would you play this game if it was in VR? I think this game would be actually... I think a mountain biking game would be really, really cool in VR. Uh, this one in particular, maybe... Uh, I think that it would change the game a lot. Uh, one of the things I do notice about the game that is a bit difficult at times is just because the perspective is enforced, sometimes I make a mistake because my character is behind a tree or, uh, or something because I'm not familiar with the course yet and I just don't know how the turn's going to go. Uh, one time I ran, one time I was trying to cross a bridge over a creek. And I literally, I ran my bike straight into the railing of the bridge. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, just because I thought that I was in line with the bridge, but I wasn't. Uh, because the perspective kind of... Uh, so there was a bunch of trees in the way. And so because of the forced perspective and the trees in the way, and that it oh, was no. my first time like going down this course, uh, I, I just ran straight into a, a post of the railing. Uh, before even getting on the bridge, and I was like, "Oh my, oh man!" It wasn't even an it wasn't even a narrow bridge. It was just 
Oh, man. Um, it's your destiny. <laughs> yeah. And so I think VR might actually make the game um, a, a bit easier in one sense, um, but also it could make the game a lot more anxiety-inducing for some people. It, that could be a vomit factory. Yeah. Yep, I can see it. I can yeah. see it. Yeah, because I think that's the thing. Like, the camera's, like, fairly far out. You can see a lot of the terrain around you uh, as you're as you're riding down the mountain. And in VR, it would be... Don't get me wrong. I think that there is a place for that game, uh, like a VR downhill mountain biking experience. Uh, I think it would probably have a very different vibe uh, than Lonely <laughs> Mountains Downhill. Yeah. It's like when when you first like started talking, like I asked, like I was super interested, like what the perspective was, because to be like a third person uh, downhill mountain biking game, just on its face, just seems so different feeling than a first-person one. Like, yeah. a first-person one could be, like, really crazy terrifying. Yeah. Okay, and, yeah, you're showing me this now. Yeah, yeah. so I'm just showing Santo's screenshot. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's like, and this is an actual... That's how you describe yeah, it. Yeah, and this is, like, an actual gameplay screenshot Yeah, uh, that we're totally able to beam at your podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's got a very... And it has no UI. Um in the exploration mode at all, which again, just really gets you into that atmosphere. If you're in the, the, if you're in one of the time trial modes, then there is a minimal interface just to show you what your current time is basically. And your current crash count. Um, but it's pretty unobtrusive uh, because the emphasis is really on the riding and like the nature. Yeah. Uh, just as it is in uh, actual mountain biking. That's really cool. Yeah, man. So, uh, maybe we go from a grounded, somewhat realistic experience based off of a real-life sport that a member of this podcast does on a regular basis to some anime bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because uh, the game that I've been uh, spending some time with recently is uh, The Caligula Effect Overdose. Uh, I just want to point out that uh, Santo came to us in the zone uh, a while ago with a suggestion, uh, with a list, okay? A list of bullshit titles for some JRPGs and stuff. Yep. Yeah, and we we knew nothing about about these games at all. And even, even Santo, I think, some of them were just sort of chosen because they had ridiculous names. And... And basically, we just made a choice. Okay, we're choosing Santos' next JRPG on how ridiculous the name is, and this is the one we chose. Yeah, yep. it's it's a really crazy name for sure. Um, so the Caligula effect was originally released on the P PlayStation Vita in 2016, um, and then Overdose is the uh, re-release of it that they did with some extra content. Uh, that they put out in 2018 that coincided with an anime adaptation of the game, which, fuck if I know, I haven't watched it. Um, and I cannot, I don't know whether this game is crap or brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> because it does so many things that are just, like, new and really crazy, but a ton of other things that are just, like, they really could have used more effort put into them. And wow. So let, let, let's get into okay. it. Uh, 
So the basic premise for the game is that you, your character, is brought into a virtual world by a Vocaloid. If you don't know what a Vocaloid is, they're a very popular series of voice synthesizers. Uh, if you've heard of Hatsune Miku, <laughs> that's a Vocaloid. Okay. It's a voice synthesizer with a brand. And no, with an anime figure. <laughs> with a with a character. Yeah. <laughs> um and so the this Vocaloid see whose name is a uh, Mew or Moo uh seems to be like bringing people into this virtual world with like good intentions for people to like escape the you know, the horrors of the real world and just, like, society beating you down and just negative negative feelings and all that and bring them into what they consider to be this idyllic paradise. Uh-oh. Now, this idyllic paradise... Every utopia, every utopia is a hellscape. Tell, tell me if you think this utopia is a hellscape. Uh, this utopia is everybody is always a high school student. And they just go through life looping through high school, starting over again and oh, over again and oh over God. again. Nope, that, oh that, God. That, that officially qualifies as hellscape. <laughs> warning, warning. And the this virtual world is called uh, Mobius. So you know, Mobius Strip. Oh my God! Loop. Oh boy! So we got we got good names going on. So here. we got like you know, Moo like. Like, is it just M-U- is it it's, M-U- it's a Greek, it's Their a identity character. can only be described character? in symbols, yeah. like Prince. <laughs> uh, and so, so the names got historical references, and the and the characters and locales are uh, mathematical references. <laughs> all right, all right. But it's it's the setting is like it's just you know normal ass Japan, really. <laughs> it's not like futuristic or anything like that, uh, and so I'm 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 kind of hoping I'm putting like a really heavy expectation on this game to be some sort of like meta commentary on how, why every like half of the anime, probably more than half of anime that's made, is about high school <laughs> and about yeah. and, and about how just like you know. Adults just like pining for their quote unquote glory days before a horrible corporate culture just snatched them away from their friends and family. Uh, it hasn't quite gotten into that yet, so yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see if it does. Um, but your character meets up with a few other people that have been brought in to this virtual world who also realize that they've been brought into this virtual world. Almost everybody there doesn't realize that uh, because they've been brainwashed. Of course they have. By yep. not by not only Moo, but a host of other like musicians. Like the <laughs> the main the main evil faction in this, uh, I forgot what it's called because they were just introduced. But it's like it's something musicians. Like that's the faction name of the people that you're like trying to like defeat and. In this oh, grand conquest to go label, home. The record labels were the big bad all along. But it's not record labels. It's just like other high school students. Because again, everything's a high, everybody's a high school student. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the So you and these other 
other people like you uh, are part of a club called the Go Home Club. And you're just trying to figure out, like, how to break this cycle and go back to the real world. And... Yeah, but uh, apparently Go Home Club is a common uh, derogatory, like, sort of insult in Japan. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, that, like students who participate in club activities in high school in Japan will, like, joke at their classmates who aren't in any of the extracurricular clubs that they're in the Go Home Club. Wow, okay. Yeah, so like, and I think, I, I'm not, I'm not, I think it's supposed to be derogatory, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah, like, some kind of like hazing kind of thing. That's uh, yeah, like, oh, you know, they're so lame that they're going home and There's of... deeper meaning to these plot concepts. <laughs> they transcend cultural concepts and high school It's a Japanese drama. game. It's right? going to be having Japanese cultural tropes. Very much so. Uh... And so the other members of this club, like, they're, they're still, like, they still have recollection of the real past selves and the, the real life. So it's a bunch of people who are, you know, not who they seem because they're in high school bodies, but they're not, you know, high school kids that have been brought into this world. Like, one of the characters that you meet has, like, a super deep voice in <laughs> Shogo, and he... Like, you can, like, talk to the other members of the club and ask them questions, like, about the world and stuff. And one of the things like, what what, what do you miss about Mobius? And his answer is alcohol and cigarettes. <laughs> so he's clearly, like, probably some, like, 30-year-old salary man or something. Uh, but have, haven't gotten to the point where I've figured out any of the uh, main characters' backstories yet. Because that's one of the things main things in this game is figuring out not only the main characters' backstories, but the backstories of everything else in the game. And that's where it gets to the part that I think this game might be brilliant. So, so wait, this is an RPG? This, Or yes. a visual novel? This is a JRPG. Okay. Uh, it's got a co- combat system? It or? does have a combat system. We'll get into that oh, in a bit. Okay. I'm, I'm, like, I'm, just like, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out like what the gameplay is here. I'm like, okay, well, there's a lot of, lots of story going on, but. Okay. I'm go- I need to show you a video here real quick of the causality link system. Oh, and this, boy. this will show you what, why this is a crazy game. Okay. Let's hit play here. So let's go into this menu. Is it going? Not yet. Let's go into this menu. And we see... This is a a grid. This is a grid of people. Other NPCs in the game. And as you can see, this grid is fucking gigantic. Whoa. Look at the number in the top left. 524. This is a grid of every single other student at the high school that you can talk to, each has a quest associated with them, and you can recruit any of them into your party. Wow. Dang. So that's what's, like, basically the main hook of the game, is that there's just, like, a huge number of NPCs. So that's what's kind of brilliant about it, but where it gets let down is that most, pretty much all the conversation with these NPCs is generic as all hell. Because it kind of has to be. Yeah. 
Um, right. Like, they're all named. They all have stats, and, like, some of them are good at different stats and whatever, sure. Um, but even the quests to, uh, like, get farther along in your friendship with them to get uh, some just extra bonuses, uh, some of the quests are the same between the different students. Uh, and, and they all res- revolve around each student has like a something about themselves that they hate and that they need to come to terms with. And some is like some pretty standard stuff of like, okay, well this this uh, this person's like you know afraid of crowds or whatever. And this person is just like a pathological liar. But then there's like a couple people. Here's the thing. There's like two different people I found that have sword addictions. Ha! An addiction to swords. <laughs> yeah, so you need to bring them to this like one NPC in the mall who sells swords and just like work the shit out. Just like have a conversation <laughs> about swords so that they can, you know. Listen, while you were in class studying math, I was at home studying, studying the, the blade. blade. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's great. So it's. So that system is really, really weird. That's an but. interesting system, but yeah, I can I can definitely see mixed mixed feelings on that because if if they made so much of it generic that it's not really five hundred odd interactions, mm. you know, they might have been better just cutting it down. Yeah, because like they're written fairly well in that like a lot of the generic text between them it just sounds like normal high school kids talking really just like oh there's a test coming up or i hate giving like the in-class introduction to myself i never know what to say so like stuff like that so the game like it's fairly well written so far but i wish that at least if they're going to make all these individual uh npcs to interact with that each one of them would have something wholly unique about them there's like a little blur, but it's not that about them, but it's not that much. And there, there is a sequel to this game. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe then, like they are able to flesh out what they got here in more detail, or you know, rein it in a little bit so that they're able to flesh it out. Because this game, it's I don't know what price it was released at originally, but it kind of looks like a budget game. It was released on the because it was released on the Vita. Like the graphics aren't fantastic. A lot of the animations are pretty bad. Um, so I don't know. I'll I'll be interested to see like how the sequel looks in comparison to this one. Uh, but some other things about this game is uh, it's Japanese voices only. Uh, there is voice acting for the main characters and plot cutscenes and whatnot, but. One thing that's really annoying is that there's a lot of just, like, you know, quips and stuff that they say in battle or in transitions from battles and stuff like that, but there's no subtitles for him. So it's just Jap- some Japanese voice, I don't fucking know <laughs> what they're saying. And speaking of ports, uh, I'm playing this on PC, and it's it's actually a pretty, it's a pretty bad port in terms of UI and usability. Um... Like, the the menu options that you have for, like, 
changing settings on the main menu and when you're in-game are completely different. For example, all the sound mixing options are you can't access until you're in-game and this being a JRPG, you don't get control for the first half hour of the game. Uh, so, <laughs> of course. So you can't. So if you want to mix it so that you know the music's not quite as loud, you can't fucking do that until you yeah. get all the way in. Okay, so, so I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out like what, what is the battle system like? What, I'm how getting to it. I'm getting to yeah, it. Yeah, let's let's hear that. What what's the excuse for high school battling? So. The power that your characters, the power that your characters uh, come from, basically, is like the things about themselves that they don't like brought to the surface. They're brought there. You have a friendly Vocaloid on your side, uh, who is all has almost been completely like wiped out by the other Vocaloid. Uh, because they disagree and too many people like the other Vocaloid. Because that's the whole thing, is that Moo, the, vil- the quote-unquote villain, though I'm sure there's going to be some shadowy shit behind all this, uh, gets her power from everybody loving her as a musician. So everybody's obsessed with her to the point where they're, like, fanatical. So... As they lose themselves to that, they get corrupted, and then you are just, like, walking around, and you have to fight them. And they're actually just, like, walking around with all the other regular student NPCs, and nobody's acknowledging anything, because everybody just thinks this is normal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so, so, yeah, you walk up to them, and if you bump into them, you start fighting them. And the combat system is the other thing that is really really cool in this game because it reminds me of a little game called Transistor. Oh shit! Oh yeah. yeah. So you've got a party of four characters and each character you line up uh, different attacks uh, or line up if you want to move and they're put on a timeline and you can put up to three attacks on the timeline for each character before it starts playing out and you see how the enemy reacts to those moves like if you you know do a, an attack that'll launch an enemy up in the air you'll see them launch in the air and then plan out other moves based on if they're still in the air or not if they've hit the ground and you'll see what the enemy is going to do so you can move yourself or activate a shield to guard against their attacks uh, all along this timeline then once you've done all your moves for one character that goes to the next character and the next character and the next character. So you can set up these really elaborate chain combos uh, between how things go that can really feel super satisfying. But your attacks also have a chance to miss. So, so if you start off by like trying to uppercut somebody in the air and you miss, then one of your other allies that you may have used a move that only works on aerial enemies that won't do anything and so you just so you could set up this elaborate combo and have a chance that the whole thing just fails from the first hit yeah so you got to be mindful of what moves you use and when you you don't have to uh lay out all the moves just like bang 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 you can adjust the timing of them and each move each attack has like a little bit of setup time before the attack happens then a cooldown time so it's 
it's a really, really interesting battle system that for, like, mook regular enemies that you're coming up against, uh, it can be, like, way, way more involved than you want. There is an auto battle mode where you'll only control uh, the protagonist's moves and then everybody else will do their moves, like, and try to work around that. Uh, so that's that's pretty good for random battles to make it so that you still have... It's not overly complicated and will drag things out. Uh, but then when you get to a lot of the stronger enemies, yeah, you can like really go in-depth, and it's it's really engaging combat. It sounds like a very interesting combat system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because this game has such a... So, so you sorry, mentioned yeah. movement as well. Is there a grid as well like the, that the oh, characters uh, are on? Uh, no grid. It's just 3D space. Uh, oh. Okay. There's, there's no like jumping or anything. But there's there's like, a there's a know. space that the characters are yeah. on. Yeah. There's like a circular battlefield that you can move around in. Uh, and also like a bunch of different actions to buff certain stats and stuff. But again, those you know those take up a certain chunk of time on the timeline. So. If you use one, you might not be able to do an attack for a few seconds. So again, you gotta really intelligently place things out when you're fighting stronger enemies. And the game actually has a bunch of like way higher level enemies just like hanging around for you to fight uh, to for like challenge stuff. And like if you go like a couple screens off from like the starting area. Like, you'll see enemies that are leveled in, like, the 90s. Wow. And you're still at, like, level 4, so it's just like, okay, fucking don't want to be here. But I've gotten into fights with, on normal difficulty, with enemies that are, like, 10 to 15 levels above mine and have been able to win through just, like, some smart play. So, so very rewarding uh, when you're fighting the the more tough enemies. Uh, the music in the game, uh, because there's such a big focus on musicians and that whole thing, uh, the music is... it's fine, but one of the cool things is that it seamlessly transitions between the music of the area you're in and a lyric version of the music of the area that you're in whenever you get into random battles. Or not random battles, sorry. Whenever you get into battles, because you see all the enemies on the on the map when you're moving around, so you can you can avoid enemies pretty easily if you don't want to fight. That's uh huh. Sounds sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's and so I guess so I guess like, like the overall you're basically trying to get your characters around the school to build out these like trees, like relationship trees. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, you're encountering the other students who've been seduced by the other vocal Seduced by the dance. The dance. The vocaloids, <laughs> my goodness. This game sounds like the, the amount of creative world building that it sounds like went into this game, it definitely takes me back to the appreciation of the Metal Gear series <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> like I'm like Metal Vocaloid 
there's <laughs> there's there's more than one crazy director out there with an amazing vision, and they're going to go throw it in in, in a uh, in in um in a game whose mechanics and atmosphere and storyline will boggle your mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, currently, I'm in I'm in the uh, second quote unquote dungeon. You might want to call it. I uh, I'm I'm at the I'm at the mall. You're at the mall. Yeah, well, that sounds like sounds like an interesting sounds like an interesting RPG. Yeah. Oh, and one of the things that they added in the remake, um, they added the uh, a female protagonist so you can choose, uh, and there's also a like secondary route that you can take where you side with like the enemy musicians. Uh, Let's keep this high school party going. <laughs> yes. Because, like, that's the thing is, you know, bringing people that have, you know, all these problems into this looping utopia where they don't have to worry about anything farther than, you know, high school life, to them, that sounds, that sounds like they're doing the world a service. So, and, the, and the most dangerous enemy you can have is one that thinks that they're right. Yep. So. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm extremely curious to see how the rest of the of the story will play out. Um, and and pretty interesting interested too if this game ends up you know meeting my expectations checking out the sequel as well to see if they've refined some of the uh the rough edges around like the relationship building mechanics and some of the awkward port issues that this PC version has. So good old we'll PC see. version troubles. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, th thanks for bringing us that overview of the Caligula effect overdose. <laughs> so are you going to move on to the next ga game in your uh, crazy game names list? No, I got another forty hours to put into this thing. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, we'll we'll get to a point where I get bored with it. I'm sure. Uh, so look forward to another weird, weirdly named game coming from me in the future. That's awesome, Santo. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, for me, I'd like to uh, share a game called Brigador. But uh, let me first. Uh, tell you just a little br uh, brief bit about this game. You can uh, uh, find it on Steam. Um, and uh, the latest version that they have, this game came out in 2016, and since then they've uh, added a few expansion stuff, um, tons of extra content. So the version that you're getting today uh, has just some revamped controls, some revamped graphics uh, a little bit. Um, but this game, l let me set the scene for you, okay? It's a uh, dark, rainy night. The landscape around you is a painting. In fact, it's uh, pixel art perfection. Uh, things are glowing. Things are shining. You're in the cyberpunk city of Solo Nobre, uh, Blade Runner-esque indeed. You're on your way home from a Texas 7, beers in hand, and all of a sudden you hear the sound of thunder and violence, and you see uh, guns blazing in the background, buildings crumbling, vehicles being squashed. So you run to your apartment, and then a giant mech bursts through your building and squishes you underfoot. Welcome to Brigador, NPC. <laughs> yeah, this game is uh, exceedingly... Uh, it is it is a lot of fun. 
So it's mechanized pixel art combat in a Blade Runner fan's dream world. Um, think Mech Warrior Five, but uh, instead of taking place on these vast cityscapes, it's taking place definitely within a city, and in fact, the city seems to be usually on some sort of space station. And uh, there's tons of people around. There's an excess of NPCs, both combat and non-combat participants. And uh, usually throughout a mission, you're going to find that there's plenty of uh, the blood of the innocent uh, stuck to the bottom of your mech's boots. Um, in addition, there's other vehicles that Dude, you this, can... this is rough. <laughs> it's, it's, it was intensely violent, although at no point is it gory. Like, all these little details are happening with these little pixel art dudes being squished and whatnot and and buildings falling and forests being obliterated and uh pieces of infrastructure falling um but you barely have time to notice it because the combat goes from there is nobody around you to your guns are so loud that everyone within a four block radius is now converging on you and wants to know who the fuck are you and why are you shooting and uh um what you'll find is that um Everything about the way that you approach these missions is customizable. So you start with what feels familiar to you, maybe the same loadout that you played in the starting missions. You know, you stick with your mechs. Um, and then the missions eventually get you piloting other vehicles like tanks uh, or hovercraft. Um, and so you figure out your ideal loadout, but then you realize later on that these missions you're trying are more overwhelming than anything that you've ever played so far, and you're really going to need to think about how to increase um, the type of firepower you'd need for a mission. Maybe it's long range, lobbing over walls to snipe at enemies who can't even see you coming yet. Maybe uh, you need some close range stuff to melt the faces off of uh, some tanks that are really bothering you. Maybe you're being chased by the slowest moving array of suicide starship torpedoes on grav lifts that uh, will annihilate your tank in one go from the minute that you let them get too close. Every mission has something slightly different uh, for you to face. Uh, some of them are even random encounters, and generally how it goes is you'll complete a mission, which is a series of levels. So there's actually a few different challenges going on when you're playing through the game. Uh, you're going to rack up currency that you can use to unlock new content, including the lore. You actually have to spend in-game currency <laughs> on the lore. Um which is hilarious. It definitely gives you that flavor text that um, essentially uh, it takes place in this city uh, where the great leader of the city has died. And in the chaos, uh, the corporations are rising up to um, carve out their uh, piece of profit piecemeal from this city whose politics and uh, um, and uh, <laughs> and the state of it is rapidly collapsing, um, and so you're playing the perspective of several different mercenaries from all the different factions, um, and you really get a roundhouse view of this world that they're building around you um, and the insanity of it through the lore that you unlock, but also just the missions themselves, the briefings. Um, and so beyond... So something that just comes to my mind is, I wonder if when a game locks the lore behind some sort of challenge or some sort of, in this case, purchase using just the currency you get from winning missions. I wonder if that makes people more likely to read it. I was definitely sucked into that. Like, if I had some spare cash, I'd be forking out, because they actually even had... Um, they don't explain in depth some of the uh, vernacular that the characters are using. 
And so you're like, oh, what is this thing that they keep referring to? And then it'll explain a little bit deeper about it, but it also helps you realize within the context of the game, okay, those random yellow bins that I keep seeing everywhere are usually filled with explosives. Let me not stand next to them while I'm in the middle of combat. Oh, so it even puts gameplay tips in the lore. Yeah. Um, if, if, but you'll need to actually read it to understand the context of, of what it means in, in the larger missions. Um, so definitely fun, but there's, it's more than, so there's always the encounter that you're immediately in that you need to survive because, uh, not paying attention to things for too long means that you're going to be ground down to the point where the next shot is going to kill you. Um, and then there's also completing the level because everything is a resource. All the shots in your, in, in both your primary and non-primary weapons are all limited resources that you can sort of replenish. But every level only has a maximum pool of ammunition for you to be able to finish it. And so if you're a bit too trigger happy, you can find yourself in an untenable position where you must be standing next to the building that you need to destroy, punching the shit out of it. But it also happens to be a refinery that's going to melt your face off the minute that you finish beating it down. So a little bit of careful planning as to how you're going to finish this mission and if it's still possible. And then there are multiple districts or levels that you pass through before the overall mission is complete, and it's easy to be completely overzealous in the first five minutes of gameplay. You've melted the face off, uh, you know, the, the, the city down to its bare bones in the very first district, but you have no ammunition and no life left, and my god, you start the second mission and you die in about, like, two minutes. <laughs> so there's that healthy balance of the game goads you, to, to go bananas when you're finishing this mission. In fact, you gain currency for every piece of building that you uh, wreck in some way, shape, or form. Every vehicle that you trash. Every civilian that you accidentally squish their heads in. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it so, gives you money for killing civilians? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That um, is a game that, design choice. That, that is a subversion of expectation. It right truly there. is a subversion. <laughs> like... When when the lore tells you that you are like, you know, um, that often the characters that you're playing are insane and that they'll reward you for increased destruction, it really ties it in that, yeah, you know what, actually I do feel like this insane pilot whose reputation is that they're um, going to wreck this poor little town off the face of the earth. And uh, by God, uh, by surviving this encounter, uh, there was nothing left standing. Um, and what I'll say is, it takes a lot of the tropes that you see in other mech combat games, things like mech warrior, uh, or mech assault, um, and some of the common weapon tropes you'll see in there, some of the common, uh... And, what about mech wizard? Mech wizard. I want to play mech wizard. Ooh, <laughs> sign me up for that, that sounds cool. Um, so if you're a fan of those other games, um, and you're hoping to kind of dip your toes in something that's not, you know, the Mech Warrior franchise or, you know, uh, the turn-based strategic combat of... Uh, I'm trying to remember what spin-off game that was. Mech Warrior... Uh, yeah, there was a Mech Warrior turn-based strategy game. Much slower paced. This game is very action-packed. You're going to finish most of your levels in about 15 minutes or less, usually faster. Uh, so in an hour, you can definitely crank out quite a few if you haven't blown yourself up in the same mission over and over. Um, and truly, if you are discovering a playstyle that you like, you can just get bigger and badder-ass, you know, um, 
mechs uh, and and weaponry along that same line. Um, for example, I remember uh, starting off with one of these weapons, which was essentially a laser shotgun. And uh, the amazing thing is when you use it against tanks, yeah, it'll it'll wreck the tank. If you use it against a, a civilian uh, or a soldier, it uh, it causes them to be vaporized in a way that reminds me of the... Um, War of the Worlds movie, where the beginning, uh, people are just dying left and right from this mech, you know, that's, uh, this alien mech that's ripping through town and like using the, its heat ray. The remake, right? Yeah, the remake. Um, and so you're wielding this ultra-powerful weapon, of which you only have 50 ammunition, like 50 shots. And then you use it on a group of soldiers, and you're like, yeah, I just wasted, like, about $500 worth of ammunition on this one poor sap. And then the funniest thing is... The most tense points are actually when you're getting low on ammunition, but you're still in the middle of a fight. So now you have to run over to um, the nearest ammunition depot and try and refuel it from it without blowing it up or letting the enemies blow it up because you're standing <laughs> next to it. Ah. So there's, yeah, there's definitely tense moments of where you've overextended yourself. Um, or you're in a battle and you're just, you know, going, oh my gosh, there's so much zipping around. And they give you also a sense of scope. So you can pilot your big-ass mech, but you can also pilot these little mech suits. And it's just you <laughs> in a little mech suit, and you've got a tiny little pea shooter version of the railgun that you were just using five minutes ago on a big weapon. And you're like, okay, this thing is tiny. I have to not take these mechs head-on. I got to spin around from the backside and punch through their rear armor, which is more effective, mm -hmm. um, in order to be able to survive this encounter. And in fact, the only way that you might survive those encounters in a smaller mech is hit and run, where you take down your target and you get the fuck out of there before you die a terrible, terrible death. Now, now you mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of the enemies are attracted to you based on what you're doing. Like, if you're making large explosions or lots of sound, that's what... Uh, triggers enemies to come swarm you. So yeah. now in, in a smaller mech suit, is it is it does it turn it almost into a bit more like a stealth game where you're trying to like yes. you've taken mechs on one at a time? And um, so I'll mention briefly, there's tools that allow you to uh, duck in and duck out like that. There's actually a, a active camo that lets you completely disengage from an area and that's very helpful. Um, and then there's one that's more combat-oriented, and it's smoke grenades. And so uh, a combination of those two, depending on what's your playstyle, whether you're looking for more um, active, dynamic fights, or you're just looking literally to get the hell out of dodge after you've landed your one blow, um, will determine what's, what's your favorite uh, um, support um, ability to bring in there. And the cool thing is the support abilities have unlimited use, so you can keep coming back to it. Now, to go back to the sound, and the cities are alive. So what ends up happening is there's certain classes of enemies that have their eyes open for you, and they're ready to call you in on radio when they see you. And by God, when you see these enemies, even though they're not the, the most pressing threat, you want to neutralize them so badly. Um, and some of them even have sentry towers that tower above the houses and the walls in this place, and they can see you from over the fence... And they can, so you actually have to take down the walls of these uh, that are blocking them before you can even directly target them, unless you have the right kind of ammunition. Mm -hmm. Because when they spot you, every enemy in the map knows your location, and they will bear down on you all at the same time, oh, resulting wow. in your death. Um, and in fact, 
when the alarm is called, uh, panic walls shoot up out of the ground, changing the entire layout of the level and forcing you to adapt oh, wow. your strategy to that. Um, now, in response, That's pretty cool. there are key structures that um, in every level that uh, besides just the ammo depots, there's the power grid. And if you knock out the power grid, all of the panic walls will fall down. Um, and also the power goes out and you can be more sneaky. And then there's also the comm towers. And if you knock out the comm towers, then those sentry enemies, their calls for help will go unanswered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that strategy. Now, environmental explosions are very effective at attracting enemies, but also every weapon profile, when you're looking through your array of weapons, has a sound profile for it being shot and a sound profile for when the shot actually impacts. And so you can take a look at the sound impact and think about how that um, plays into your play style. And I would often have a secondary weapon that's maybe like mortars that has a very quiet travel profile, but an extremely loud shot landing profile and I'd literally I'd I'd use the extended view to look as far away that from I can from my current location and blow something up off in the distance and watch all the enemies who haven't seen me yet go traveling in the wrong direction so that I can go snipe my uh my mission objective before getting out of dodge. That's cool. Yeah. And the other thing is that's a really yeah, I like that. That that's a really cool that's a really cool feature. Getting out truly. Like, there is no magical, you finish the mission, mission complete, you're oh, done. No. <laughs> you actually have to escape oh, the level nice. every time. And so, if you've not prepared yourself to do that, you poor soul, you finish the mission objective, and the panic walls shoot up, and your only exit out of there is now blocked, and you're forced into the most intense firefight of your life. So... Um, yeah, those are all common scenarios that I've been finding as I'm playing this game. The music is fantastic. It's pretty bumping. Uh, the graphics by far give you this great, great atmosphere. Yeah, I think actually I, I, I was the one that uh, recommended the game to Sean. Yes. I, I heard about it a long time ago, but uh, the soundtrack to it came up on my Spotify. And I, I was just listening to the soundtrack so much. And I was like, man, yeah, I should really play this game cross-media strategies oh yeah so so uh, there you go game devs release your soundtrack on spotify if you're not already yes and uh thank you alex i give that one two thumbs up um it uh from what i've heard it does go on on sale on steam so if you're looking for it on there you might be able to find it for a good deal um and uh is it worth its value and money you'll definitely get a lot of replay value from mission to mission, you know, you're completing the missions, you're unlocking uh, the characters, um, and uh, it's definitely boatloads of fun. Cool. Do you know if the missions are, uh, like, set in stone, or if they're, like, procedural? Uh, so there's the story missions, and those are set in stone. Okay. Um, the pre- there are procedural missions, and that's in the free play. Uh, right. okay. So what generally happens is that it's actually either or. Either the mission, uh, the landscape is locked, but the objectives are different each time, or the landscape is uh, random, but the mi- the objectives are the same. It seems like there's the two branches where you can tell um, it's either a randomized district and they tell you this is what needs to be done, or they tell you that it's this specific district, um, complete the mission objectives as described. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, something I'm wondering about the story because you talk a lot about the various 
decisions you have to make in terms of like ammo conservation and uh, you know destroying the level to get money. So is there is there like resources that you have to be concerned about wasting too much in a mission uh, that you might not have enough for the next mission? Like, uh, like so that? we'll say that the missions are a series of levels um, uh, because once you finish that one level, you're immediately you're plunked into the next level with the exact same health, the exact same shields, the exact same weapon count that you and ammunition count that you had from before until you finish that series of missions. If you fail, you're likely to barely come out even. I've actually not yet come out not breaking even, because the destruction count is great enough that you always seem to break even. Um, but uh, it is theoretically possible to go in, into the red. But Yeah, um, so like, like what you were saying, each mission contains multiple districts, and you go from district to district just without getting any new stuff. Yeah. But in between that... Like, after your series of districts is complete, you complete your objective and escape, then uh, presumably you go back to some sort of main menu for the story or whatever, or the campaign or whatever you want to call it. And then you go to the next series of missions. Now, when you're, when you're going to that, is there any carryover of, of resources yes. or units? You or have your master fund, and this master fund, so the first few missions that you start out with... You're generally unlocking one or two things, uh, or basically the bigger this thing is, like if it's a small weapon system, then you're likely to be able to unlock a few of those in the first few missions, but not yet a mech. Meanwhile, after, say, your third or fourth mission, you're, you're definitely going to have enough for another mech or two, but if you dump all your funds into that, then you're stuck using the weapons that you already have. Okay. But the general progression feel that I got was that no matter what was going on, I was always steadily progressing towards being able to afford the, the next thing that I wanted to play with. Right, but you're, you're not going to get stuck in... It's not, a, it's not the kind of game where you're going to get stuck into a position where you've run out of resources and you can't continue in the campaign. Correct. Um, well, the campaign but that is, won't happen. The campaign is always a source of funds. It's the freelance mode that uh, can be a drain on your funds. So in case you do get stuck in freelance, say that you absolutely hit the max of your expenditures and you can't afford the initial cost for the next mission that you wanted, you could go replay any of the story missions and get a boatload of funds to be able to continue freelance as you so please. But also, the characters that you unlock, they too have their own lore, and they're not. it's not just for the lore... The actual difficulty of the level is dynamic to the character that you play, and so is the mission rewards. So you can play as an absolutely psychopathic, like legend of a of a of a character um, whose reputation precedes him, and and he'll call upon the forces of hell, you know, every time that he's in a level, and you'll face massive resistance. Uh, but also the payout will be five times as high as uh, um, a character who's not so crazy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like characters have a reputation too. Though. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something that I didn't mention actually about uh, the Caligula effect is that unlike a lot of other RPGs, um, you start each battle with full HP, full action points, and there's no and there's no like usable items like potions and stuff like that so mm. so it's actually it's the complete opposite of Brigadier to where yeah. there's like there's no um like persistency between 
uh, between battles in that way to where you have to really worry about what you're using. Uh, so if you're in a dungeon, you know, you can you can use all your stuff whenever you want and not have to worry that you're going to be out of stuff when you hit the boss at the end. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. But how am I going to hoard all the powerful items until the end of the game when I haven't <laughs> used any of them? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the, 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 the eternal problem of inventory systems. <laughs> the one thing that I'll say is they've improved the control schemes. They've set some new, uh, like with, with the remastered version. How do you know that? Um, Did through you looking try it up, <laughs> I went to the classic versions of their okay. control schemes. So you, you, you try, they still have the classic version. They do. Controls. Um, and I can definitely say that in the middle of combat, when everything is around you and your control scheme is tied directly to the orientation of your of your mech, as opposed to having reliable, you know, WASD is, is north, east, south, or west, let me tell you that combat becomes so much more intense when you get tripped up over your own fucking feet and you don't know which way your mech is facing and this costs you uh, <laughs> your life. Well, tank controls are great. <laughs> Everybody loves tank controls. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come on. How else am I going to independently rotate the chassis and the turret? And the other thing that I'll say is that this game really forces you to truly, in great detail, admire the scenery because it doesn't hold your hand as to what is what objects are so explosive that uh, standing next to them will annihilate you uh, when when you destroy them. So the first few games that you are playing, you may find that you truly do blow yourself up by accident quite a few times, being like, I didn't know that that was a refinery. Uh, oh, this is what a gas station looks like in the future. Um, oh, this is this and that. And so taking a moment when there's no combat to actually just take a look and admire what the NPCs are doing, um, you know, like... Uh, are are there vehicles fueling up from this thing? Okay, I know I shouldn't plot over that building later. Um, those kinds of small decisions uh, can be had just by immersing yourself for a second in the environment and being like, oh, okay, world building. They've done it well. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Especially because like that was one of the things that just watching footage and trailers of the game that made me want to play it is that uh, visually it just has this beautiful pixel art aesthetic. Uh, and especially with the sound design and, and the music, uh, seemed like it cultivated a really cool atmosphere for the game. Yeah. It's got style. It's, it's yeah, it's Full a very, it style. is a very stylish looking game. Yeah. So, uh, without further ado, that's Brigador. And if you find that game particularly fun, um, and, uh, you have some thoughts about the game or any of these other games we've talked about today, like the Killigula Effect... And uh, Alex, the name of your Lonely game? Lonely Mountain. Lonely Mountain. Lonely Mountains Downhill. Downhill. Um, be sure to write us at uh, AngrySunZone at Outlook.com. That's right. And if Twitter is your uh, conversation tool of choice, our DMs are open. So check us out at, at AngrySunZone. And if you'd like to check out uh, some videos, perhaps, uh, we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, we recently, uh, Santo recently uploaded some uh, a footage from a a new MOBA game, a Pokemoba game. Yeah, some solo Pokemon Unite content. So look forward to more stuff there. Uh, just Angry Sun Zone on YouTube. 
Thank you for your time, wonderful listeners, and uh, we look forward to you tuning in on the next episode. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to boss you into listening to the next episode, but you might want to listen to it, because next time, we're talking bosses. And the awesome music that comes with them, and uh, our favorite picks. Tune in next time to the Angry Boss Zone.